Master Humphrey's Clock, Section Two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. Master Humphrey's Clock by Charles Dickens, Section Two, Chapter One, Part Two. First Night of the Giant Chronicles. Turning towards his companion, the elder giant uttered these words in a grave, majestic tone. "'Magog, does boisterous mirth beseem the giant warder of this ancient city? Is this becoming demeanour for a watchful spirit over whose bodiless head so many years have rolled, so many changes swept like empty air, in whose impalpable nostrils the scent of blood and crime, pestilence, cruelty, and horror, has been familiar as breath to mortals, in whose sight time has gathered in the harvest of centuries, and garnered so many crops of human pride, affections, hopes, and sorrows. Bethink you of our compact. The night wanes. Feasting, revelry, and music have encroached upon our usual hours of solitude, and morning will be here apace. Ere we are stricken mute again, bethink you of our compact. Pronouncing these latter words with more of impatience than quite accorded with his apparent age and gravity, the giant raised a long pole, which he still bears in his hand, and tapped his brother giant rather smartly on the head. Indeed, the blow was so smartly administered that the latter quickly withdrew his lips from the cask to which they had been applied, and, catching up his shield and halberd, assumed an attitude of defence. His irritation was but momentary, for he laid these weapons aside as hastily as he had assumed them, and said as he did so, "'You know, Gog, old friend, that when we animate these shapes which the Londoners of old assigned, and not unworthily, to the garden genie of their city, we are susceptible of some of the sensations which belong to humankind. Thus, when I taste wine, I feel blows. When I relish the one, I disrelish the other.' therefore gog the more especially as your arm is none of the lightest keep your good staff by your side else we may chance to differ peace be between us amen said the other leaning his staff in the window corner why did you laugh just now to think replied the giant magog laying his hand upon the cask of him who owned this wine and kept it in a cellar hoarded from the light of day for thirty years till it should be fit to drink quoth he he was twoscore and ten years old when he buried it beneath his house and yet never thought that he might be scarcely fit to drink when the wine became so i wonder it never occurred to him to make himself unfit to be eaten there is very little of him left by this time the night is waning said gog mournfully i know it replied his companion and i see you are impatient but look through the eastern window placed opposite to us that the first beams of the rising sun may every morning gild our giant faces the moon rays fall upon the pavement in a stream of light that to my fancy sinks through the cold stone and gushes into the old crypt below the night is scarcely past its noon and our great charge is sleeping heavily they ceased to speak and looked upward at the moon the sight of their large black rolling eyes filled Joe Toddyhigh with such horror that he could scarcely draw his breath. Still they took no note of him, and appeared to believe themselves quite alone. 
"'Our compact,' said Magog, after a pause, "'is, if I understand it, that instead of watching here in silence through the dreary nights, we entertain each other with stories of our past experience, with tales of the past, the present, and the future.' with legends of london and her sturdy citizens from the old simple times that every night at midnight when st paul's bell tolls out one and we may move and speak we thus discourse nor leave such themes till the first grey gleam of day shall strike us dumb is that our bargain brother yes said the giant gog that is the league between us who guard this city by day in spirit and by night in body also and never on ancient holidays have its conduits run wine more merrily than we will pour forth our legendary lore we are old chroniclers from this time hence the crumbled walls encircle us once more the postern gates are closed the drawbridge is up and pent in its narrow din beneath the water foams and struggles with the sunken starlings jerkins and quarter-staves are in the streets again the nightly watch is set the rebel sad and lonely in his tower dungeon tries to sleep and weeps for home and children aloft upon the gates and walls are noble heads glaring fiercely down upon the dreaming city and vexing the hungry dogs that scent them in the air and tear the ground beneath with dismal howlings the axe the block the rack in their dark chambers gives signs of recent use the thames floating past long lines of cheerful windows whence comes a burst of music and a stream of light bears suddenly to the palace wall the last red stain brought on the tide from traitor's gate but your pardon brother the night wears and i am talking idly the other giant appeared to be entirely of this opinion for during the foregoing rhapsody of his fellow-sentinel he had been scratching his head with an air of comical uneasiness, or rather with an air that would have been very comical if he had been a dwarf or an ordinary-sized man. He winked, too, though it could not be doubted for a moment that he winked to himself. Still he certainly cocked his enormous eye towards the gallery where the listener was concealed. Nor was this all, for he gaped, and when he gaped, joe was horribly reminded of the popular prejudice on the subject of giants and of their fabled power of smelling out englishmen however closely concealed his alarm was such that he nearly swooned and it was some little time before his power of sight or hearing was restored when he recovered he found that the elder giant was pressing the younger to commence the chronicles and that the latter was endeavouring to excuse himself on the ground that the night was far spent and it would be better to wait until the next well assured by this that he was certainly about to begin directly the listener collected his faculties by a great effort and distinctly heard magog express himself to the following effect in the sixteenth century and in the reign of queen elizabeth of glorious memory albeit her golden days are sadly rusted with blood there lived in the city of london a bold young prentice who loved his master's daughter there were no doubt within the walls a great many prentices in this condition but i speak of only one and his name was hugh graham this hugh was apprenticed to an honest bowyer who dwelt in the ward of chapey and was rumoured to possess great wealth rumour was quite as infallible in those days as at the present time but it happened then as now to be sometimes right by accident it stumbled upon the truth when it gave the old bowyer a mint of money 
His trade had been a profitable one in the time of King Henry the Eighth, who encouraged English archery to the utmost, and he had been prudent and discreet. Thus it came to pass that Mistress Alice, his only daughter, was the richest heiress in all his wealthy ward. Young Hugh had often maintained with staff and cudgel that she was the handsomest. To do him justice, I believe she was. If he could have gained the heart of pretty Mistress Alice by knocking this conviction into stubborn people's heads, Hugh would have had no cause to fear. But though the bowyer's daughter smiled in secret to hear of his doughty deeds for her sake, and though her little waiting-woman reported all her smiles, and many more, to Hugh, and though he was at a vast expense in kisses and small coin to recompense her fidelity, he made no progress in his love. He durst not whisper it to Mistress Alice save on sure encouragement, and that she never gave him. A glance of her dark eye as she sat at the door on a summer's evening after prayer-time, while he and the neighbouring prentices exercised themselves in the street with blunted sword and buckler, would fire Hugh's blood so that none could stand before him. But then she glanced at others quite as kindly as on him, and where was the use of cracking crowns if Mistress Alice smiled upon the cracked as well as on the cracker? Still Hugh went on and loved her more and more he thought of her all day and dreamed of her all night long he treasured up her every word and gesture and had a palpitation of the heart whenever he heard her footstep on the stairs or her voice in an adjoining room to him the old bowyer's house was haunted by an angel there was enchantment in the air and space in which she moved it would have been no miracle to hugh if flowers had sprung from the rush-strewn floors beneath the tread of lovely mistress alice never did prentice long to distinguish himself in the eyes of his lady-love so ardently as hugh sometimes he pictured to himself the house taking fire by night and he when all drew back in fear rushing through flame and smoke and bearing her from the ruins in his arms at other times he thought of a rising of fierce rebels an attack upon the city a strong assault upon the bowyer's house in particular and he falling on the threshold pierced with numberless wounds in defence of mistress alice if he could only enact some prodigy of valour do some wonderful deed and let her know that she had inspired it he thought he could die contented Sometimes the bowyer and his daughter would go out to supper with a worthy citizen at the fashionable hour of six o'clock, and on such occasions Hugh, wearing his blue prentice coat as gallantly as prentice might, would attend with a lantern and his trusty club to escort them home. These were the brightest moments of his life to hold the light while mistress alice picked her steps to touch her hand as he helped her over broken ways to have her leaning on his arm it sometimes even came to that this was happiness indeed when the nights were fair hugh followed in the rear his eyes riveted on the graceful figure of the bowyer's daughter as she and the old man moved on before him so they threaded the narrow winding streets of the city now passing beneath the overhanging gables of old wooden houses whence creaking signs projected into the street and now emerging from some dark and frowning gateway into the clear moonlight at such times or when the shouts of straggling brawlers met her ear the bowyer's daughter would look timidly back at hugh beseeching him to draw nearer 
and then how he grasped his club, and longed to do battle with a dozen rufflers for the love of Mistress Alice. The old bowyer was in the habit of lending money on interest to the gallants of the court, and thus it happened that many a richly dressed gentleman dismounted at his door. More waving plumes and gallant steeds indeed were seen at the bowyer's house, and more embroidered silks and velvets sparkled in his dark shop and darker private closet than at any merchant's in the city. In those times, no less than in the present, it would seem that the richest-looking cavaliers often wanted money the most. Of these glittering clients there was one who always came alone. He was nobly mounted, and having no attendant gave his horse in charge to Hugh, while he and the bowyer were closeted within. Once as he sprung into the saddle, Mistress Alice was seated at an upper window, and before she could withdraw he had doffed his jewelled cap and kissed his hand. Hugh watched him caracoling down the street and burnt with indignation. But how much deeper was the glow that reddened in his cheeks, when, raising his eyes to the casement, he saw that Alice watched the stranger, too. He came again, and often, each time arrayed more gaily than before, and still the little casement showed him Mistress Alice. At length one heavy day she fled from home. It had cost her a hard struggle for all her old father's gifts were strewn about her chambers, as if she had parted from them one by one, and knew that the time must come when these tokens of his love would wring her heart. Yet she was gone. She left a letter commanding her poor father to the care of Hugh, and wishing he might be happier than ever he could have been with her, for he deserved the love of a better and purer heart than she had to bestow. The old man's forgiveness, she said, she had no power to ask but she prayed God to bless him, and so ended with a blot upon the paper where her tears had fallen. At first the old man's wrath was kindled, and he carried his wrong to the Queen's throne itself, but there was no redress he learnt at court, for his daughter had been conveyed abroad. This afterwards appeared to be the truth, as there came from France after an interval of several years a letter in her hand. It was written in trembling characters and almost illegible, little could be made out save that she often thought of home and her old dear pleasant room and that she had dreamt her father was dead and had not blessed her and that her heart was breaking the poor old bowyer lingered on never suffering hugh to quit his sight for he knew now that he had loved his daughter and that was the only link that bound him to earth it broke and at length he died bequeathing his old prentice his trade and all his wealth and solemnly charging him with his last breath to revenge his child if ever he who had worked her misery crossed his path in life again. From the time of Alice's flight, the tilting-ground, the fields, the fencing-school, the summer evening sports knew Hugh no more. His spirit was dead within him. He rose to great eminence and repute among the citizens, but was seldom seen to smile, and never mingled in their revelries or rejoicing brave humane and generous he was beloved by all he was pitied too by those who knew his story and these were so many that when he walked along the streets alone at dusk even the rude common people doffed their caps and mingled a rough air of sympathy with their respect one night in may it was her birthnight and twenty years since she had left her home hugh graham sat in the room she had hallowed in his boyish days he was now a grey-haired man, 
though still in the prime of life. Old thoughts had borne him company for many hours, and the chamber had gradually grown quite dark when he was roused by a low knocking at the outer door. He hastened down, and opening it, saw by the light of a lamp which he had seized upon the way, a female figure crouching in the portal. It hurried swiftly past him, and glided up the stairs. He looked for pursuers. There were none in sight. No, not one. He was inclined to think it a vision of his own brain, when suddenly a vague suspicion of the truth flashed upon his mind. He barred the door and hastened widely back. Yes, there she was, there in the chamber he had quitted, there in her old, innocent, happy home, so changed that none but he could trace one gleam of what she had been, there upon her knees, with her hands clasped in agony and shame before her burning face. "'My God, my God!' she cried. "'Now strike me dead!' though I have brought death and shame and sorrow on this roof. Oh, let me die at home in mercy! There was no tear upon her face then, but she trembled and glanced round the chamber. Everything was in its old place. Her bed looked as if she had risen from it but that morning. The sight of these familiar objects, marking the dear remembrance in which she had been held, and the blight she had brought upon herself, was more than the woman's better nature that had carried her there could bear. She wept and fell upon the ground. A rumour was spread about in a few days' time that the bowyer's cruel daughter had come home, and that Master Graham had given her lodging in his house. It was rumoured, too, that he had resigned her fortune, in order that she might bestow it in acts of charity, and that he had vowed to guard her in her solitude, but that they were never to see each other more. These rumours greatly incensed all virtuous wives and daughters in the ward, especially when they appeared to receive some corroboration from the circumstance of Master Graham taking up his abode in another tenement hard by. The estimation in which he was held, however, forbade any questioning on the subject, and as the bowyer's house was close shut up, and nobody came forth when public shows and festivities were in progress, or to flaunt in the public walks, or to buy new fashions at the mercer's booths, all the well-conducted females agreed among themselves that there could be no woman there. These reports had scarcely died away when the wonder of every good citizen, male and female, was utterly absorbed and swallowed up by a royal proclamation, in which Her Majesty, strongly censuring the practice of wearing long Spanish rapiers of preposterous length, as being a bullying and swaggering custom tending to bloodshed and public disorder, commanded that on a particular day therein named, certain grave citizens should repair to the city gates, and there in public break all rapiers worn or carried by persons claiming admission that exceeded though it were only by a quarter of an inch three standard feet in length royal proclamations usually take their course let the public wonder never so much on the appointed day two citizens of high repute took up their stations at each of the gates attended by a party of the city guard the main body to enforce the queen's will and take custody of all such rebels if any as might have the temerity to dispute it and a few to bear the standard measures and instruments for reducing all unlawful sword-blades to the proscribed dimensions in pursuance of these arrangements master graham and another were posted at ludgate on the hill before st paul's a pretty numerous company were gathered at this sport 
for besides the officers in attendance to enforce the proclamation, there was a motley crowd of lookers-on of various degrees, who raised from time to time such shouts and cries as the circumstances called forth. A spruce young courtier was the first who appeared. He unsheathed a weapon of burnished steel that shone and glistened in the sun, and handed it with the newest air to the officer, who, finding it exactly three feet long, returned it with a bow. Thereupon the gallant raised his hat, and crying, "'God save the Queen!' passed on amidst the plaudits of the mob. Then came another, a better courtier still, who wore a blade but two feet long, whereat the people laughed much to the disparagement of his honour's dignity. Then came a third, a sturdy old officer of the army, girded with a rapier at least a foot and a half beyond Her Majesty's pleasure. At him they raised a great shout, and most of the spectators, but especially those who were armourers or cutlers, laughed very heartily at the breakage which would ensue. But they were disappointed, for the old campaigner, coolly unbuckling his sword and bidding his servants carry it home again, passed through unarmed to the great indignation of all the beholders. They relieved themselves in some degree by hooting a tall, blustering fellow with a prodigious weapon, who stopped short on coming in sight of the preparations, and after a little consideration turned back again. But all this time no rapier had been broken, although it was high noon, and all cavaliers of any quality or appearance were taking their way towards St. Paul's churchyard. During these proceedings Master Graham had stood apart, strictly confining himself to the duty imposed upon him, and taking little heed of anything beyond. He stepped forward now as a richly dressed gentleman on foot, followed by a single attendant, was seen advancing up the hill. As this person drew nearer, the crowd stopped their clamour, and bent forward with eager looks. Master Graham, standing alone in the gateway, and the stranger coming slowly towards him, they seemed, as it were, set face to face. The nobleman, for he looked one, had a haughty and disdainful air, which bespoke the slight estimation of which he held the citizen. The citizen, on the other hand, preserved the resolute bearing of one who was not to be frowned down or daunted, and who cared very little for any nobility but that of worth and manhood. It was perhaps some consciousness on the part of each, of these feeding in the other, that infused a more stern expression into their regards as they came closer together. "'Your rapier, worthy sir!' At the instant that he pronounced these words, Graham started, and falling back some paces laid his hand upon the dagger in his belt. "'You are the man whose horse I used to hold before the bowyer's door. You are that man? Speak!' "'Out, you prentice hound!' said the other. "'You are he! I know you well now!' cried Graham. "'Let no man step between us two, or I shall be his murderer!' With that he drew his dagger and rushed in upon him. The stranger had drawn his weapon from the scabbard ready for the scrutiny before a word was spoken. He made a thrust at his assailant, but the dagger which Graham clutched in his left hand, being the dirk in use at that time for parrying such blows, promptly turned the point aside. They closed. The dagger fell rattling on the ground, and Graham, resting his adversary's sword from his grasp, plunged it through his heart. As he drew it out, it snapped in two, leaving a fragment in the dead man's body. All this passed so swiftly that the bystanders looked on without an effort to interfere. 
but the man was no sooner down than an uproar broke forth which rent the air the attendant rushing through the gate proclaimed that his master a nobleman had been set upon and slain by a citizen the word quickly spread from mouth to mouth st paul's cathedral and every bookshop ordinary and smoking-house in the churchyard poured out its stream of cavaliers and their followers who mingling together in a dense tumultuous body struggled sword in hand towards the spot with equal impetuosity and stimulating each other by loud cries and shouts the citizens and common people took up the quarrel on their side and encircling master graham a hundred deep forced him from the gate in vain he waved the broken sword above his head crying that he would die on london's threshold for their sacred homes they bore him on and ever keeping him in the midst so that no man could attack him fought their way into the city the clash of swords and roar of voices the dust and heat and pressure the trampling under foot of men the distracted looks and shrieks of women at the windows above as they recognized their relatives or lovers in the crowd the rapid tolling of alarm-bells the furious rage and passion of the scene were fearful those who being on the outskirts of each crowd could use their weapons with effect fought desperately while those behind maddened with baffled rage struck at each other over the heads of those before them and crushed their own fellows wherever the broken sword was seen above the people's heads towards that spot the cavaliers made a new rush every one of these charges was marked by sudden gaps in the throng where men were trodden down but as fast as they were made the tide swept over them and still the multitude pressed on again a confused mass of swords clubs staves broken plumes fragments of rich cloaks and doublets and angry bleeding faces all mixed up together in inextricable disorder the design of the people was to force master graham to take refuge in his dwelling and to defend it until the authorities could interfere or they could gain time for parley but either from ignorance or in the confusion of the moment they stopped at his old house which was closely shut some time was lost in beating the doors open and passing him to the front about a score of the boldest of the other party threw themselves into the torrent while this was being done and reaching the door at the same moment with himself cut him off from his defenders i never will turn in such a righteous cause so help me heaven cried graham in a voice that at last made itself heard and confronting them as he spoke least of all will i turn upon this threshold which owes its desolation to such men as ye i give no quarter and i will have none strike for a moment they stood at bay at that moment a shot from an unseen hand apparently fired by some person who had gained access to one of the opposite houses struck graham in the brain and he fell dead a low wail was heard in the air many people in the concourse cried that they had seen a spirit glide across the little casement window of the bowyer's house a dead silence succeeded after a short time some of the flushed and heated throng laid down their arms and softly carried the body within doors others fell off or slunk away in knots of two or three others whispered together in groups and before a numerous guard which then rode up could muster in the street it was nearly empty those who carried master graham to the bed upstairs were shocked to see a woman lying beneath the window with her hands clasped together after trying to recover her in vain 
they laid her near the citizen, who still retained, tightly grasped in his right hand, the first and last sword that was broken that day at Ludgate. The giant uttered these concluding words with sudden precipitation, and on the instant the strange light which had filled in the hall faded away. Joe Toddyhigh glanced involuntarily at the eastern window, and saw the first pale gleam of morning. He turned his head again towards the other window in which the giants had been seated. It was empty. The cask of wine was gone, and he could dimly make out that the two great figures stood mute and motionless upon their pedestals. After rubbing his eyes and wondering for full half an hour, during which time he observed morning come creeping on apace, he yielded to the drowsiness which overpowered him, and fell into a refreshing slumber. When he awoke it was broad day. The building was open, and workmen were busily engaged in removing the vestiges of last night's feast. Stealing gently down the little stairs, and assuming the air of some early lounger who had dropped in from the street, he walked up to the foot of each pedestal in turn, and attentively examined the figure it supported. There could be no doubt about the features of either. He recollected the exact expression they had worn at different passages of their conversation, and recognized in every line and liniment the giants of the night. Assured that it was no vision, but that he had heard and seen with his own proper senses, he walked forth, determining to all hazards to conceal himself in the Guildhall again that evening. He further resolved to sleep all day, so that he might be very wakeful and vigilant, and, above all, that he might take notice of the figures at the precise moment of their becoming animated, and subsiding into their old state, which he greatly reproached himself for not having done already. Correspondence to Master Humphrey. Sir, before you proceed any further in your account of your friends, and what you say and do when you meet together, excuse me if I proffer my claim to be elected to one of the vacant chairs in that old room of yours. Don't reject me without further consideration, for if you do you will be sorry for it afterwards. You will, upon my life. I enclose my card, sir, in this letter. I never was ashamed of my name, and I never shall be. I am considered a devilish gentlemanly fellow, and I act up to the character. If you want a reference, ask any of the men at our club. Ask any fellow who goes there to write his letters what sort of conversation mine is. Ask him if he thinks I have the sort of voice that will suit your deaf friend and make him hear, if he can hear anything at all. Ask the servants what they think of me. There's not a rascal among em, sir, but will tremble to hear my name. That reminds me, don't you say too much about that housekeeper of yours. It's a low subject, damned low. I tell you what, sir, if you vote me into one of those empty chairs, you'll have among you a man with a fund of gentlemanly information that'll rather astonish you. I can let you into a few anecdotes about some fine women of title that are quite high life, sir, the tip-top sort of thing. I know the name of every man who has been out on an affair of honour within the last five-and-twenty years. I know the private particulars of every cross and squabble that has taken place upon the turf, at the gaming-table, or elsewhere, during the whole of that time. I have been called the gentlemanly chronicle. You may consider yourself a lucky dog upon my soul. You may congratulate yourself, though I say so. 
"'It's an uncommon good notion, that of yours, not letting anybody know where you live. I have tried it, but there has always been an anxiety respecting me, which has found me out. Your deaf friend is a cunning fellow to keep his name so close. I have tried that, too, but have always failed. I shall be proud to make his acquaintance. Tell him so, with my compliments.' "'You must have been a queer fellow when you were a child confounded queer. "'It's odd, all about the picture in your first paper, "'prosy, but told in a devilish gentlemanly sort of way. "'In places like that I could come in with great effect with a touch of life. "'Don't you feel that? "'I am anxiously awaiting for your next paper "'to know whether your friends live upon the premises and at your expense, "'which I take it for granted is the case. "'If I am right in this impression,' i know a charming fellow an excellent companion and most delightful company who will be proud to join you some years ago he seconded a great many prize-fighters and once fought an amateur match himself since then he has driven several males broken at different periods all the lamps on the right-hand side of oxford street and six times carried away every bell-handle in bloomsbury square besides turning off the gas in various thoroughfares in point of gentlemanliness he is unrivalled and i should say that next to myself he is of all men the best suited to your purpose expecting your reply i am etc etc master humphrey informs this gentleman that his application both as it concerns himself and his friend is rejected end of chapter one End of section 2